Well, the text of Scripture this morning that I'd like to draw to your attention is Mark 10, verses 13 to 16. Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. And now is the time when I want to let families know this is our one time of the month that we have a special kids ministry for elementary school age kids and younger. And uh, lest I undermine what we're about to hear out of Mark 10, Jesus welcoming the children. This isn't us getting rid of kids. Um, This is, in fact, it's the same Jesus and the same salvation that we're going to be talking about here, that they're going to be hearing about there, but it's just more geared for their age group. So families that desire, go ahead and go. Uh, Kids and those serving them, of course, kids are welcome to stay in with us if that's what parents would desire. But Mark 10, 13 to 16 is our text. So I'll begin by reading it and then praying for God's blessing. And we're continuing to hear, of course, about Jesus. That's the hymn that we hear about in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Father, we, just as we sang, we invite you to speak to us through your powerful word. We ask for you to pour out your spirit, both in my proclamation and all of us in our hearing of these words of Christ. Show us glory that the eyes of flesh cannot see. Give me faithfulness and clarity in my speaking and give us all alertness and softness of heart to hear. Please do more than we could ask in your life-giving work among us through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. This week, a news story broke that could have broad significance in the world of higher education. In a story headlined, Yale and Harvard Law Schools say they won't participate in U.S. news rankings. We read that these two elite law schools that are ranked first and fourth in the country by U.S. news have both pulled out of the system. They'll stop sending data to U.S. News, which the magazine uses to calculate their rankings. And I found it notable that the top-ranking school, the juggernaut, made the move first. It says, quote, Yale, which has captured the number one spot every year since U.S. News began ranking law schools in 1990, was first to announce the decision. Hours later, the Harvard Law Dean informed students that it would do the same, end quote. Well, why did the schools make this bold move? Well, they both found the ranking system implicitly promoting values that disagree with their own. The the article says, quote, both schools said the rankings are in conflict with their commitments to student diversity and affordability, end quote. In other words, the ranking system indirectly punishes schools for doing things like letting in low-income students and keeping tuition down. 
Now, some observers speculate that this move could begin a domino effect that totally disrupts the prestigious ranking system. I mean, what if all the elite law schools opt out of providing data to U.S. news? Well, whether or not you are planning to apply to a top-ranking law school, this story provides a fascinating case study of opting out of a ranking system that does not agree with one's own values. And in a similar way, today's text places before us two conflicting visions, two conflicting scales of value. You see, the world is ranking us, my friends. Many of us have opted into this system and are trying to race for the top because the values of this ranking scale resonate with the sinful desires of our own hearts. Others of us may not be climbing to the top, but that only gives us a sense of inadequacy. Believe it or not, that anxiety reveals that we're still buying into the system. We just know that it's a race we can't win. But Jesus is entering our lives this morning to turn over some tables. He's going to disrupt the value system that grabs for our hearts. Now we're in the central section of Mark, which began in chapter 8. And in earlier chapters, the beginning of the book, the narrative focused on showing us who Jesus is and the kind of humble, listening response that He requires. But now this central section sits in the shadow of Peter's climactic confession in Mark 8.29 of Jesus as the Christ, the anointed deliverer and king promised by God. And since that confession, we've been pressed with a great irony and then a resulting question. The great irony is that this promised and anointed king is also the suffering servant promised by Isaiah. Jesus has been predicting that he's on his way to the cross uh, to pay for the sins of God's people through his sacrificial death. And it is actually his victory over the grave itself in his resurrection. It's through that that he'll take his rightful place as king. And then in view of that great irony, then the resulting question that's been arising and, and been answered in this section of Mark is, if that's true of Jesus... What do the disciples of a suffering Christ look like? And the answers are as ironic as a crucified king. We we saw in chapter 8 verses 34 to 38 that disciples are people who take up their cross, their execution instrument, to suffer with Jesus. We saw in 935 that they are low in rank, they're the servants of all. And then just the next two verses in chapter 9, we saw that there are those who humbly welcome little ones, the insignificant ones of the world. We saw at the end of chapter 9, verses 43 to 50, that disciples are totally yielded to Jesus' rule. So they violently battle temptation and sin in their lives. And then yesterday in chapter 10, verses 1, sorry, last week in chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, we saw that disciples honor God's model for faithful marriage with the softness of heart. And so today we'll hear one more quality of those who are following the suffering Jesus and entering His kingdom. And to put it briefly, it's this. Only small people fit into Jesus' kingdom. Only small people fit into Jesus' kingdom.
And this episode of Mark makes this point and reveals really three axioms of life, three permanently true truths that we must understand. And we'll look at those each in turn. The first truth that we must understand is this in verse 13. Big people despise small people. Big people despise small people. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. Now last week we saw in verse 1 of chapter 10 that Jesus has moved from his home region in the north in Galilee to the southern region of Judah and the area across Judah, uh, across the Dead Sea from Judah. And he's moving toward Jerusalem in the cross in this portion of Mark. He's engaged in public ministry. And our text last week ended in verses 10 to 12 with a private conversation between Jesus and his disciples. But now that parenthesis is over and we're back to that public setting of ministry. And verse 13 tells us that people, most likely parents, are bringing children to Jesus to touch them. Now, the word translated children conveys a wide age range, all the way from like babies all the way up to uh, before puberty. It's like our words kids or child, the way we use those terms. Now, why did Jesus want to touch the ch- or why did they want Jesus to touch the children? Well, both Jewish background and verse 16 can help fill in the gap for us. Uh, in the end of this account, Jesus does what? In verse 16, he lays his hands on the children. And blesses them. And this was a common Jewish practice. Uh, For instance, even way back in Genesis 48, verses 14 to 18, the old patriarch Jacob does this with his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He lays one hand on each of their heads and pronounces a blessing on their future. And this is something that if, if a rabbi or some kind of holy man were coming to town, it would be common to ask for this kind of blessing. This seems to be what The parents wanted Jesus to do. And by the end of the account, this is what he does. To pronounce a blessing is a way of praying. It's calling for certain measures of prosperity for these children's future. Now, some in church history have turned to this text as a defense for infant baptism. People wanting to bring little kids for Jesus' blessing. We can see some parallels there. But to look here as a precedent for baptism, it's not applicable because no one is being baptized in this text, even though some people were baptized by Jesus' disciples in his ministry. And also, this isn't just infants, these are kids of all ages here. We'll see momentarily that the criterion for kids to enter God's kingdom is the same as for anyone else. But what do the disciples do in response to these people's request? They rebuke them. They scold them and they try to shoo them away. There's no explicit note in the text about why, but we know why. Just the chapter before, in uh, 9, 33 to 37, the Lord had set two things in opposition. Receiving a child in Jesus' name and thinking oneself to be great. That conversation they're debating about who's great leads to Jesus talking about receiving a child in his name. You see, disciples are servants, and so they warmly welcome the lowly. So here, after having heard Jesus say that, the disciples have a golden opportunity to obey His instruction and receive children in His name. But sadly, they utterly fail. And they fail because they're proud. They fail because they think themselves to be great. 
They know that Jesus is the Christ and they know that He's great. But they think that it's a sort of greatness that makes Him too busy and too important to be wasting His time on these children. And of course, that's the same kind of greatness that they're seeking for themselves. They're ambitious for human honor. Back in 934, they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. And then later on in this very chapter, in 10 verses 35 to 41, they'll continue jostling for privileged positions. They don't get it. We're in the middle of the sandwich where the disciples are still stuck on their own honor. Now, there's some evidence that children were despised in that day, having no recognized civil rights. In fact, it was because, it's because of texts like this in the Bible that Christianity gradually reshaped how children were treated and viewed across the Western world. But even still in our culture, though it's not as acceptable to mistreat them, we still easily overlook and dismiss children. That's what the disciples were doing. Jesus has bigger interests than these little kids. He is a busy man in high demand. And as we're about to see, they are totally misreading Jesus. And so they'll get a stern correction. And this is all just another piece of fallout from the ambitious and proud attitude we've already seen from the disciples. We've seen, again, how it makes them compete against each other and argue. We've seen how it makes them territorial about a man in chapter 9 who was healing in Jesus' name and they tried to rebuke him because he wasn't following them. And so here's a new level of ugly. Their quest for human greatness causes them to despise the lowly and the weak. And the problem with this, as we'll see, is that these small, unimpressive ones are exactly the people that Jesus welcomes with open arms. And maybe you and I do the same thing. We can be so caught up in a human scale of value that we're so busy trying to climb our way up that we find ourselves ignoring or despising those who are below us. We look at the world's criteria, and there's not any one single scale. There's all sorts of different scales the world has. Things like social skills, accomplishments, vocation, income, education, style, aesthetics. We have a million ways of comparing ourselves with others and ranking ourselves relative to others. But when we latch on to one of these scales of value, it can turn our hearts to dark places with regard to how we view those quote-unquote, below us. That's what friendship with the world does with our souls when we ascribe to these value systems. It's like we're an elite college. We've been ranked highly by U.S. News and we look down sneeringly at our inferiors and we think we are so much better than you. It's like if we're climbing a staircase that's been carved up a mountain. Let's say there's a lot of people that, that... started at the same time climbing this mountain and you are especially fit and quick and so after an hour of vigorous climbing you look down the windy stair and you see all those sad slow pokes way down there huffing and puffing their way up the slope and what do you think? I'm a pretty good climber. But this is not Jesus' way. And so it's loathsome and evil in the lives of those who claim to follow him. Woe to those who turn others away from the grace of God because we're measuring them by the fallen sinful criteria of the world. 
Now let me point out two ways that this might appear in our life as the body of Christ. The first is that it could have implications on how we form and prioritize relationships. Who do we draw close to? Who do we spend our time with? Who do we prefer to be with? Do we prefer those who are as high on whatever ranking scale, whatever system that we ascribe to as we are? Someone who's doing as well as we are, it can make us feel good to associate with those people. Again, it can be all sorts of different metrics, different measuring scales that we look at. Those who are as intelligent as we are. Those who are as socially savvy as we are. The second way this can appear in our midst is how we identify and raise up and celebrate leaders. Churches have sadly and far too often subscribed to human values in its selection of leaders. The attractive, the charismatic, the good public speakers, the self-confident, the cool, those who can successfully market themselves, say with social media. And among many other problems, applying these worldly criteria can seriously undermine our ability as a church to open our arms to the small ones in the name of Jesus and extend His all-sufficient grace to them. We lie to them about what really matters. And it's that grace of Jesus to the small ones that we'll examine next in verses 14 to 15. This is the second important truth we have to know. Small people receive God's kingdom. Small people receive God's kingdom. It says, but when Jesus saw it, what his disciples were doing, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. How does Jesus respond to the disciples' screening system? With indignation, with righteous anger. Jesus has been angry before in Mark. He was both angered and grieved by the hardness of heart his opponents showed to the crippled man in 3.5 in the synagogue. There's a man whose hand is crippled and they're watching Jesus to see all they care about is, is Jesus going to break the rules? And Jesus is angered and grieved by their hardness of heart against this man. His anger is righteous and holy. It is a response to real injustice. Something that matters, and matters a lot, is being threatened by His disciples' sin. Because not only are these individuals being barred from access to Him, but the problem is actually bigger. The disciples are broadcasting a totally false message to the world about Jesus and His kingdom. So the first thing he does in verse 14 is correct them. He says, knock it off. Let those people come to me. But that's not all. The the way he explains this correction, which takes us through the rest of verse 14 and verse 15, is the center of this episode in Mark. It's the reason this story is here in the book. The king has a major clarification to issue about the nature of his kingdom. Namely, in verse 14, the kingdom of God belongs to such, meaning such as these. And verse 15 tells us it belongs exclusively to such as these. The word that Jesus uses for such in verse 14 indicates that this group, children, and those who are somehow like them, 
are those who own the kingdom of God. It's the children and the childlike. But what is it about children and others such as them that qualifies them for the kingdom of God? Well, verse 15 goes on to help us. The only people who get the kingdom are those who do what? Receive it like a child. And this idea of receiving is really the heart of it. Children receive things with complete and utter dependence. They're not concerned about preserving their dignity. They're not worried about self-sufficiency. Children are dependent every second of every day and they know it and they're okay with it. But then you grow up and you get a little older and you start wanting to do things for yourself. You start to feel more dignified when you're less dependent. You don't want mommy and daddy putting your underwear on you anymore. Thank you very much, for instance. Small children are not aware of ranking systems. Now, make no mistake, they have plenty of problems of their own. They're sinful too. But Jesus isn't calling them perfect here. He's pointing to this beautiful quality of simple, humble, unpretentious, dependent, receiving. In other words, they're the opposite of the disciples. They're not racing up a ladder. They're not clambering for a cabinet position in the coming Jesus administration. When Jesus talks about receiving and entering the kingdom of God, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about the work of restoration and rescue that he has come to bring. In chapter 9, verse 45, he talked about eternal life on the final day. But then two verses later in verse 47, he talked about, in parallel way, entering the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the eternal life Jesus brings. Uh, the, The gospel or good news of God that Mark introduced to us way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Mark 1, 14 to 15, is the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand in Jesus, calling all men everywhere to repent and believe. Jesus came to defeat sin and death and Satan. He came to restore God's righteous rule on earth. And through His atoning death, He'll ransom later on in the story men and women from the power and penalty of sin. So in talking about receiving the kingdom, He's simply talking about salvation in its fullness. And who receives the gospel? Well, again, we just, I just reminded you in one fifteen, the necessary response to Jesus is to repent and believe the gospel. That's what He says. Repent and believe. But now is Jesus here introducing a new third criterion? In addition to repenting and believing, we also have to become like little children. Is that what he's saying? No. He's not teaching a separate requirement from faith and repentance. Rather, he's describing the condition of heart in which this faith will or will not occur. Because at its heart, faith is receiving. It is resting. The, the, the catechism we use at our house, the children's catechism, asks, what is faith in Jesus Christ? And then the answer is, it's receiving and resting on Him alone for salvation as He has offered to us in the Gospel. It is receiving and resting on Him alone. That's faith. It's depending. And so you can see that it's inherently humiliating I don't mean that in a negative way, but it is inherently humbling. It forces us down. It's inherently unpretentious. 
It's not compatible with trying to make a big deal out of yourself. If you're busy trying to prove that you've got what you need, you won't trust Jesus. That just isn't faith. And the next time we're in Mark, we're going to see a perfect counterexample that illustrates the most non-childlike kind of person who can't enter the kingdom because he's sitting atop the U.S. news ranking system, as it were. He's positioned on top of the leaderboard and that position has such a grip on his heart that he simply cannot repent and believe. Now, do all kids enter the door of the kingdom of God? Well, no, not all of them. Jesus isn't saying that. Many kids will grow up to become unbelieving, hard-hearted adults. But in their lowly and weak state, they do have an inside track to salvation. They are closer to the kingdom, aren't they? They have fewer barriers to impede them. They have fewer trophies that they'll have to throw into the trash bin. And let me say as an aside here real quick, this text does not teach about the salvation of the unborn or infants or other young children who tragically die too young to understand sin and the gospel. I believe there is very good reason for hope on that front, but that's another biblical conversation. Here, Jesus is simply talking about the childlike quality of humble dependence that keeps one low enough to enter the door of his kingdom by faith. It's ironic that the bar, really the bar to entry into the kingdom is hard, not because it's so high, but because it's so low. And another clarification here that would be helpful is that Jesus isn't teaching that outward poverty or lowliness of circumstance has intrinsic spiritual value. Being an outcast, being a loser, being poor doesn't make you a Christian. It's possible to be a nobody in society and yet be obsessed with attaining human honor, just like it's possible to be poor and greedy. (coughs) However, again, the lowly do have more of an inside track to the self-abasement of faith because they have less to entangle them and trip them up. Well, what about you and me? What's going on in our hearts? Don't we feel a little bit more secure and a little bit more dignified, and a little bit more comfortable when we're holding on to some of the cards that the world finds valuable. Can't we hold our heads just a little bit higher? When we're deciding whether to attend a class reunion, for instance, do we do things like assess how much we've accomplished? If so, what's the hidden logic there? We cringe at having to show our face around others who started in the same place as us but did better. That feeling of discomfort that you might have at that kind of prospect, that's what's happening here. We're putting ourselves on the ladder. Where am I on the ladder? As always, friends, God is after our hearts. Are we climbing a ladder of human ambition or are we receiving the kingdom of God as dependent nobodies? If we are pursuing the world's measures of success and honor, then the scariest outcome for our eternal souls is that we win. Because every rung of the ladder that we climb higher and higher may more deeply and more firmly serve to harden our hearts against saving faith. So when the world pats you on the back for meeting its criteria of success, take heed. Be warned that this is a place of greater spiritual danger. 
Now, the Lord may providentially provide you with a prestigious job or an impressive income. And if he does, you can receive those things with thankfulness. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things. The problem is not the circumstance per se. The problem is a heart that grabs hold of that status and becomes swollen with self-sufficient pride. This makes me better. Beware of subscribing to the world's ranking systems. Be like Yale Law. Be like Harvard Law. Don't cooperate. Don't send them your admissions data. Opt out of the system. But not only is Jesus warning us here, but by the very same stroke, he's also freeing us. Because when disciples tune their antenna to heaven's frequency, what it does is it instantly liberates us from hearing the world's broken judgments against us. Because what they think really doesn't matter. We're just not listening to that frequency. It frees us to be a kid, to open our hands, to take Jesus, to receive the kingdom as a gift, pure and free. To say, honestly, I'm a sinner. I'm estranged from God. There's nothing I could do to earn myself any credit that counts on the day of judgment. All I bring is an empty hand to Jesus. Now, our text is one of many places where the Bible teaches that God's kingdom is a place of ironic reversals. The way things look now is not the way they will finally be. Or as Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4.18, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Uh, Read Psalm 73 sometime to hear about Asaph struggling with the prosperity of the arrogant, wicked people around him. They do so well. And they keep getting fatter and fatter, which in that culture is a way of saying, like, they're doing so well. And they don't face consequences. And he's so bothered by this. How does he get out of that funk? It says in verses 16 to 17 of Psalm 73, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. It is only in view of God, namely the presence and the future judgment of God, that the true nature of the apparent prosperity of the wicked becomes evident. The kingdom of God is received by faith today, but fully entered in that final day. This is a place of ironic reversals. We will one day see this irony in full bloom. What about Paul in 1 Corinthians, reflecting on the hidden wisdom of God and extending His power to save through what? The foolish cross of Christ. Nobody likes a cross. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 20-21, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The world has its credentialed wise people, its debaters, its intellectuals. And God was pleased to circumvent all that, to go right right around it and save through the cross. The kingdom of God is a place of ironic reversals. And so for us, friends, the usual temptation for us is to try to keep a hold with one hand of the kingdom of God. But then on the other hand, we still want to grab at the world's faulty value system. We still want to grab some of that vain applause. The danger is subtle. And this is why we need such strong words from Jesus. And we don't just need the the affirmation and invitation of, of 
Verse 14, it's beautiful. To such people as these belongs the kingdom. We don't just need that. We need the warning of verse 15. To only such as these belongs the kingdom. We will have to make our choice. Will it be worldly greatness or kingdom greatness? Will it be friendship with the world or friendship with God? I brought up earlier about the church when we celebrate human greatness and we look for its values in our leaders. It exhibits a tragic and dangerous misunderstanding of God's kingdom. We are lying to the world about the nature of God's kingdom. It is God's glory to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble, says 1 Peter 1.5. It is God's glory, says Isaiah 2.11, to bring down the haughty looks of man and to humble the lofty pride of man so that he alone will be exalted on that final day. So back to climbing that mountain staircase. You may feel good about yourself if you're ahead, but suddenly, what if you look up and you see an avalanche coming? And so now, instantly the question becomes, who's in the best position to reach safety? Well, it's the people at the bottom. At that moment, it doesn't matter how fit you are and how fast you've climbed to the top. What matters is how close to safety are you? That crisis instantly resets our measure of success. And so it is with the kingdom of God. So we've seen first that big people despise small people, and then we've seen that small people nevertheless receive God's kingdom. The third axiom, the third truth we must know in verse 16 is this. Jesus loves small people. Jesus loves small people. It says, He took them in His arms and blessed them, laying His hands on them. The story ends similar to how it began. In verse 13, the parents brought children wanting Jesus' hand laying and probably implied there His blessing for the kids. And in verse 16, He gives it. But He adds yet another unrequested measure of intimacy. He holds the children in His arms. This is how you convey warmth and love to a young child. And nobody asks for this. Jesus delights to do it. It was his idea. Picture this in your mind. The scene fades out on this shot of Jesus. It so beautifully characterizes him and his kingdom. He's holding little kids in his arms, got a hand on them, and he's blessing them. Why is the kingdom of God for the childlike? Because God delights in pouring out the riches of his grace and mercy. God loves being the supplier. God loves being the all-sufficient fountain. He loves being the Savior. That's why throughout the pages of Scripture, He's always responding most fully to neediness and desperation and trust. It is love that extends Jesus' welcome to children and the childlike. It's His great joy to draw near to the needy and pour out mercy. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon exulting this mercy of Jesus Christ. He says, It is His heaven to bring men to heaven. It is His glory to bring sons and daughters to glory. He is never so happy as when He is receiving sinners. End quote. Fast food play areas and amusement park rides have those must be this tall to participate lines. You've seen those. It must be at least this tall. Oh wait, must be... Ah, they're different. Ah, so the, the ride is must be at least this tall to ride. The fast food play area is must be shorter than this line to participate. And so this is the line that the kingdom of God has. Must be no taller than this line. 
And this is not a matter of arbitrary value. This isn't just God deciding out of nowhere, let's make it so only the small, only the humble can enter. It's part of the design of the kingdom because it is Jesus' delight to love the weak and needy and those who mourn their great sinfulness. So friends, for us, do we have the eyes of Jesus and the heart of Jesus toward those that He welcomes? It is all too easy for us to ignore or dismiss the young, little kids. We might be tempted to laugh off their fears and concerns, to trivialize them, because they might seem silly to us. That's not Jesus' way toward them. His way is to hold them and to bless them and to lay a hand on them, identifying with them, drawing near in kindness. And I believe this is an area where you brothers and sisters are imaging Jesus well, but we can excel still more. To be those who receive children and the childlike, those who are looked down upon in our society with unrelenting mercy and kindness for Jesus' sake. To actually proactively draw near to them. And for our own souls, doesn't it warm us to see Jesus opening up this special place in his heart for the most dependent, the most vulnerable? And there's other places in Mark where he's done this. I would say toward the childlike, if not for children. Remember the woman with that bleeding disease for so many years and was, was desperate and was probably despondent and yet had at least the hope to reach out and touch Jesus. And his words of kindness to her daughter, you're healed. This is Jesus' delight. And again, there's great uh, freedom for us in Jesus' teaching because the low place of unpretentious humility is the place where our burdens are actually lifted because they're carried on the mighty shoulders of Christ Himself. So we can be honest about our sins and our weaknesses because we have nothing to prove to anyone. We have opted out of that game. And if this freeing effect is happening on each of our hearts individually and we're embracing that low place of kingdom greatness... How would that continue shaping our corporate culture here as a church? Well, it would promote honest confession of sin and weakness to one another. We would be quick to confess, quick to seek prayer and accountability and counsel and encouragement. It would promote brotherly love across all sorts of human boundaries and up and down all sorts of pecking orders. The world's ranking system would just not make sense in here. You'd have people discipling each other that the world would expect it to be the opposite. It would promote a context of trying to outdo one another in showing honor. It would promote a collective humility that together we're magnifying the all-sufficient grace of God for all of us. If you're wearing armor for a battle, then you're all set for a battle. But you are poorly clothed for an intimate embrace. If you are wearing armor for a battle, but you want a hug, say you came home from battle and you you survived, you want a hug from a spouse or a child or a friend, what do you have to do? You have to take that armor off. It's going to get in the way. And the childlike alone are suitably clothed to receive the full embrace of Jesus' grace and mercy and to extend it to one another in the body. So friends, only small people fit into Jesus' kingdom. In the strange paradoxical way that only Jesus is capable of, this truth hits us as at the same time a generous invitation and a dire warning. It's like when you're stuck in the hull of a capsized boat, the way up is down, right? The way out is down and then up. 
If you simply try to swim to the top, Jesus warns us it may feel good for a time, but it's a trap. We'll never receive the free grace of the kingdom that way. We'll never receive His rescue that way. But if we lower ourselves to receive with the simple open hand of a child reaching out for a sippy cup, this is the way of inheritance of glory. Which will it be for you? Let's pray. God, we love and exalt Your mercy, Your all-sufficient grace. That is, the, the hymn says, all the fitness You require is to feel our need of You. To come to You with that empty hand and, and saying, I'm bankrupt, I have nothing, I'm a sinner. I have nothing that qualifies me for Your kingdom. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for His heart toward the little ones. And we pray that we would be little ones. For any who don't know Christ this morning, we pray that you would, for the first time in this profound way, humble their hearts before you, that they would see Christ as the one they desperately need and renounce any claim they have to their own value system. And for those of us who follow Christ, we always need this word because pride keeps tempting us. It keeps rising up in our hearts and we want to have your kingdom and yet also have the world's applause and have what the world values. Father, we pray you'd keep us ever in this poor spirit, this low frame of heart by which Jesus alone is the supplier and Jesus alone is magnified. We pray all this in his great name. Amen.